It's Friday 14th of July, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up nearly 18 months into the Ukraine war, and here's where things get tougher for Russia's economy. But now I'm joined by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi there, Neil. Hi, David. So Harold Wilson said a week is a long time in politics. God knows what he would have made of the bond market over the past week. Seven days ago, all about persistent inflation, higher for longer rates, and the 10-year Treasury yield over 4%. Now, apparently, the inflation crisis is over. We're basically done with rate hikes, and yields are back below 4%. Is it as easy as all that? Well, I think we're going to get better news on the inflation front over the coming months. Now, I know that we, we've said this for a while. In fact, we were arguing at the start of the year that inflation would fall further and faster than markets had expected at the time. I think it's fair to say inflation hasn't fallen quite as quickly as we had anticipated. But now those cards have started to fall into place. Those pieces are starting to fall into place. And I think we're going to see faster falls in inflation over the coming months. If you look at the PPI data, which got less press, but was released after the CPI data over the past week, that is now negative, actually, in, in, in the US in year-on-year terms. And that illustrates the extent to which pipeline pressures are starting to weaken. So I think we're going to get better news on the inflation front over the, over the coming months. Headline inflation, I think, will fall quite quickly. I think it's going to get below 3% in the US by the end of this year. Core inflation is obviously what matters more from the perspective of the Fed. It's going to be slower to, to moderate. But again, I think it's going to continue to moderate over the, over the coming months. So as you're saying, at the very start of this tightening cycle, we were saying that there is a path to a soft landing, but it's a very narrow path indeed. Now we've had this these signs of unequivocal cooling in both headline and core US inflation and the unemployment rates just 3.6%. So have they succeeded in tackling inflation without breaking the labor market? Well, this is the big question. I think it helps to take a step back and think, what did that path to a soft landing look like? We wrote about this extensively in the first quarter of the year, and we spoke about it on this podcast. And if you remember back then, the, the whole thesis was that because we were on the vertical part of the aggregate supply curve, you could get quite big falls in prices without having large falls in aggregate demand. And that appears to be what's what's playing out. The so-called sacrifice ratio, which is what some economists had been talking about at the start of the year, in other words, the amount of pain that you need to inject it in the economy through the unemployment rate going up, has turned out to be a lot lower, I think, than some had feared. The question is, is this sufficient to get inflation all the way down to two percent on a sustainable basis, and I think it's it's questionable as to whether it is because at the moment wage growth in the U.S. Is still kind of four percent or more. That's inconsistent with a two percent inflation target when productivity growth is as weak as it is currently. I think the other point, which is perhaps more important, is yes, there was always a path to a soft landing, and the data over the past week have been encouraging on that front. The question is more about not necessarily whether the soft landing was possible or not, but whether or not we're going to get one. And I think the likelihood is that because the lagged effects of monetary tightening have yet to fully pass through to the real economy, I think we're still going to see quite substantial deterioration in economic activity over the second half of this year. And therefore, as we outlined in our US economic outlook that went a couple of weeks ago, a mild recession is still, in our view, the most likely outcome here. You talk about the effects of, of monetary tightening coming through this, this long variable lags with which they feed into the economy. 
we've got a Fed meeting at the end of July. We're forecasting another 25 basis points there, and that that will mark the end of the cycle. But it's also notable, the Wall Street Journal reporting this, this live debate within the FOMC about whether they need to hike again after July, at which point our forecasts are showing inflation is going to be well and truly in, in, in retreat. I mean, how, how does the Fed play this when you've got this data showing you know, that the policy you've instituted is, is working, but obviously there's, there's this concern about taking their foot off the brake too soon? How, how are they going to play it? It's incredibly difficult for the Fed, I think, at this position, because as we've discussed in the past, that the old models for thinking about inflation, for forecasting inflation, broken down so that there's there's less to anchor the view on uh, and less to anchor the policy decisions on now they've already tightened by a lot over the past 12 months or so this has been the most aggressive tightening cycle in the last 40 years nominal rates and for that matter real rates are above their neutral level at the moment as i say the lagged effect of that tightening is yet to fully pass through and the economy is going to be weaker over the second half of this year and we've now had positive inflation data and of course, the Fed has said it's going to be more data dependent. Put all that together, if I was sat on the FOMC, I would be calling time on this tightening cycle. I don't think there's a justification for raising rates again at this stage in July, let alone going again in the autumn or the fall. So I think there's probably enough here for the Fed to just pause and take take stock. Of course, they can always start to retighten again if they, they need to. Now, I don't think they will do that. I think a, a July hike is probably on the cards given they've they've committed as much in public. And as you say, the real debate is whether or not they go again in September. So a July hike, likely, but probably not necessary. A September hike, 50-50, but on balance, probably less likely to happen. So taking a step back from, from the US, because what was really interesting this past week as well was the fact that after that June uh, US inflation data came out, it wasn't just treasury yields falling. It was also uh, gilt yields and bund yields as well. What's going on there? Why were they rallying as well? Well, I think it's partly on the uh, expectation or the belief that um, what's happening in the US will eventually happen in the Eurozone and in the UK. It's really notable how the US has been about six months ahead of Europe and the UK in this inflation cycle. So signs that inflation pressures are starting to ease in the US and ease a bit more than markets had anticipated. I think of been picked up in, in markets in Europe and reflected in, in, in moves in bond yields. So, so it's partly this belief that what's happening in the US will be repeated in Europe. The question is, will it? And there are a couple of reasons why inflation may be a bit slower to fall back. In particular, underlying inflation is still being pushed up a bit by the second round effects of those higher energy prices that particularly hit Europe in, in the wake of the war in Ukraine. So that's still feeding through into core pressures. And I think that might mean that core inflation is perhaps a bit slower to fall back in the in the Eurozone and in the UK than is the case in the US. I think the other point here too is that in the case of the UK, there still seems to be some pretty fundamental supply side concerns that are going to keep price pressures a bit more stubborn. Nonetheless, I think inflation will start to fall across the Eurozone and in the UK. We've got UK inflation data coming up over the coming week. We've penciled a fall, quite a big fall in the headline rate from 8.7% to 8.2% in June. That's driven to a large extent in, by falls in energy and food inflation. But core inflation might come down a bit from 7.1% to 7%, we think. But like I say, it's that core inflation that's going to be a bit slower to grind lower in, in the case of the UK and, and, and the Eurozone. So perhaps a bit more work for central banks in, in the region to do. 
But generally, it does seem as though this past week has given us some pretty good news on the inflation front. That said, we're not out of the woods, are we? Our macro team, our emerging markets teams, and our commodities teams, our briefing clients is coming Wednesday in a drop-in, which is one of our, our short-form webinars. They're going to be talking about the return of El Nino and the risks all around that. Can you, can you talk through what those might be? Yes, absolutely. So the World Meteorological Organization has this month announced there's a 90% probability of an El Nino event in the second half of this year. That refers to a warming of the ocean surface or above average sea temperatures in the central and eastern tropical Pacific Ocean. Now, these events occur every few years. We've not had an El Nino, I think, for seven years. But the key point is they typically tend to lead to drier weather across large swathes of West Africa, Southeast Asia, and Northern South America, and much wetter weather in Southern South America. And all of that plays havoc with crops and harvests and has the effect of tending to push up food prices. The problem, of course, though, is that when you then try to trace El Nino events back through into food inflation, as our chief global economist, Jennifer McEwen, has shown over the past week or so in, in research, it's very difficult to do. And there's no clear link between, saying an El Nino event happening and DM food inflation rising by a, a given amount. Now, part of the reason is that food, and, and particularly the foodstuffs that are especially affected by an El Nino are a relatively small part of the CPI basket. They're typically about 2% of, of the CPI basket in advanced economies. So it tends to get overwhelmed by other effects. And of course, the strength of El Ninos varies. You can have very strong, strong El Ninos that have, are really, really disruptive for crops and harvests, and you can have relatively mild ones. Now, on average, if it's a very, very strong El Nino, it's perhaps pushed up OECD inflation by about 0.1, So that's the kind of order of magnitude in the kind of worst case scenario for DMs. So perhaps less of an issue for DMs. For EMs, where, where foods are a much larger part of the, the CPI basket, it's a much bigger deal and a much bigger risk. So something for central bankers in advanced economies to keep an eye on, particularly given the elevated rates of inflation still in, in Europe and, and the fact that we're still in a relatively early phase of the disinflation cycle, but a much bigger threat in, in EMs, where, where food is a bigger part of the basket. That was Neil Shearing on the risks around El Nino's return. Our link to our events page via the notes for this podcast for details of our El Nino briefing this coming Wednesday, but also for our session on June UK CPI, which is also on Wednesday, just after the data release. Now, last month's failed rebellion against Vladimir Putin by Yevgeny Prigozhin's Wagner Group was one of the most extraordinary moments in Russia's 18-month-long war on Ukraine. Liam Peach, our senior EM economist, has a new report out looking at Russia in light of the rebellion, and that lays out a pretty stark future for its macroeconomic stability and how that feeds into Putin's ability to wage war. I spoke to Liam early this week about the reports and started by asking why the Russian economy has held up relatively well. When we look at the bigger picture, is that the economy has has coped, and I think there are a few reasons for that. One is that Russia has spent the best part of a decade reducing its dependence on the West. You know, the private sector has reduced their external debts. There's been de-dollarization, and policymakers in Russia have pursued very tight fiscal policy. So they kept their public debt to GDP ratio low and they weren't as affected when they were cut off Western financial markets and, and had to um, 
borrowed domestically on, on local markets. The other factor is that policymakers in Russia launched a comprehensive response after the war started. They restrict capital controls, measures to safeguard the health of the banking sector. All of this helped to maintain financial stability during the early months of the war. And I think another point worth mentioning is that the sanctions regime just hasn't had as large a bite as people thought. You know, it's been relatively porous. Russia's been able to circumvent trade and financial sanctions through third countries. And it's been able to expand trade and financial ties with non-sanctions imposing countries, including in Africa and in Asia. I think all of these were important, but in, in our view, the, the key factor that explains Russia's resilience was the surge in its current account surplus to more than 10% of GDP last year. I think this is, in, this is important because Russia is a big commodity exporting country. There was a huge surge in its goods exports because oil and gas prices rose sharply. And this, this surge in the current account surplus you know, provided quite a big cushion for Russia's external stability. The terms of trade boost strengthened the ruble after an initial sharp fall. That was a key factor helping to lower inflation last year. The export boom allowed import demand to recover, and Russia was then able to reorientate a lot of its supply chains away from the West and towards Asia without much trouble. And another point is that the large trade surplus blunted the freezing of the, of the foreign exchange reserves of the central bank. Freezing those foreign exchange reserves would have had a much larger impact in Russia if Russia had had a balance of payments crisis, but it managed to avoid that. So it didn't experience those, extreme, those same external pressures that otherwise could have done. Your report shows how these conditions may not last, but also how dependent the, the future of Russia's economy is on these, on these key variables. Uh, and, and I guess the biggest of these is obviously the war in Ukraine and much there, it seems, depends on what happens, not only on the front line, but also in terms of sort of the Kremlinology that can influence military strategy. Uh, and I have to, you know, we often caution that we're not military strategists, but we do do macro insight. And it seems like you can't analyze Russia's economy without having a sense of likely scenarios for where the war is going. So on that basis, I mean, talk through where you think we do go from here and what that all means for the economy. Yeah, it's, it's a very good question about how, how the war now impacts Russia's economy. I think Russia is now at, or has been at an inflection point. You know, the story from most of last year was one in which Russia benefited from this big boom in energy exports. That's now changed completely. Russia's current account surplus has shrunk drastically this year. The government's budget balance is in a wide deficit. There are inflation risks building left, right and centre. And also at the same time, military priorities in Ukraine are now having bigger spillovers and are posing a more binding constraint to Russia's economy. There's been a huge drop in the labor force, partly because you've seen a big exodus of people leaving the country. There was the mobilization of reservists last September, and there's been the additional recruitment of hundreds of thousands of additional soldiers this year. All of this has had the impact of tightening Russia's labor markets, unemployment rates at a post-Soviet low. And wage growth is quite strong. Military production is, has expanded very strongly this year. There seems to have been some reorientation of the non-war economy's productive capacity towards the war effort. That's had quite a big impact. And also, uh, more generally, the, these inflation risks from, from the external side are now feeding through. The ruble has come under quite enormous pressure this year, in large part because of the reduction in that current account surplus and 
and large capital outflows. So I think the Russia's now at a point really where it can maintain this this macro stability that it that it's achieved so far during the war, but that hinges on export revenue stabilizing near current levels and the government continuing to pursue a relatively limited war effort. Yeah, that's quite an unstable position that Russia's economy is in. Obviously, we don't know how the war is going to play out. If if one scenario plays out in which the government devotes more resources to the war effort, we think that probably could trigger a decline in Russia's macroeconomic stability. I think a larger war effort wouldn't doesn't need to have too much of an impact. If if most of the increase in military spending was met through domestic production and there was an offsetting tightening of fiscal policy in the non-war economy, the impact on aggregate demand, imports and Russia's current account surplus could be limited. But in, in reality, we suspect that probably wouldn't be the case. And it wouldn't be politically feasible for policymakers to suppress domestic demand too heavily with tighter policy. So I think Russia's really now at, at quite a quite a vulnerable position. There are a number of ways that the war in Ukraine could play out, you know, ranging from you know, a quick resolution, which we think is unlikely to more of a sort of a long-lasting frozen conflict, which in our view is, is a more likely scenario. We think one in which Russia probably devotes more resources to the war effort, which could involve more military spending and more and a higher mobilization of troops, is likely to play out in the coming months, but that it doesn't fundamentally alter the course of the war. And I think that's one that Russia's economy would probably struggle to to adapt to. I think one one question really around around the war is just how far policymakers go with it. Since the start of the war, policymakers have, have molded economic policies around the war. The finance ministry has continued to prioritize fiscal restraint. The central bank is keeping monetary policy tight and is, is committed to its inflation targeting mandate. President Putin hasn't interfered with this in many ways because the war has not yet been on a large enough scale so as, so as to alter policymakers' priorities. But again, that could change and it's sort of it's uncertain really exactly how how the war feeds into Russia's macroeconomic stability. There's a striking chart in the report which shows how Russia's current account and budget positions are, are going to get worse. Even our baseline view points to some erosion. How does this tie in with this idea of macroeconomic stability? Yeah, I think when people look at macroeconomic stability in Russia, they, they a lot of commentators tend to focus on Russia's budget. And Russia's budget right now, the government budget is in a 5% of GDP deficit on a 12-month sum basis. It's, it's very large. But we don't think financing that is as big a deal as some claim. You know, Russia has assets in the National Wealth Fund that it can draw down, although these are these are dwindling and it can lean more heavily on local bond issuance. I think the key for Russia's macroeconomic stability really is what happens to the current account position. Unlike a budget deficit, which can be financed domestically, a current account deficit has to be financed through net external borrowing. This is a much harder constraint on financing, and the additional constraints in Russia compared to other countries include the large share of central bank FX reserves that are frozen by Western sanctions, and the fact that Russia simply cannot generate the private capital inflows needed to sustain a current account deficit. Russia is experiencing quite large capital flight. So I think there's a limit really to how much Russia's current account surplus can continue to fall. What determines that, I think, in the short term is going to be what happens with energy export revenues. Our baseline view is that oil prices 
probably continue to stay around $60 per barrel. That's euros crude. And natural gas prices stay very low. We think Russia's current account is probably going to stabilize around 2 to 3% of GDP. That's the level that we've assessed at which Russia can sustain external stability. But I think the key point here is that, again, Russia is in a very unstable position. It probably wouldn't take much of a further fall in export revenues, whether that comes from another fall in oil prices or tied to Western sanctions on Russia's exports to push Russia's balance of payments into a more dangerous position. And that's exactly what we showed in the chart, where Russia's now in sort of the red area of a heat map, where these macroeconomic stability risks really start to crystallize. Russia's economy is in a very precarious position, and the risks do seem to be skewed to the downside, given the variables that you've discussed. Uh, if things don't go right for Russia, could the government find itself in a position where it has to seek a settlement to the war or a way out of the war because of these macroeconomic pressures that, that prove unbearable? Yes, it's a very good question, I think, about just how, how what's happening on the macroeconomic side feeds into the government's military priorities. I think they have been a little bit detached. I think the fact that Russia went to war in Ukraine last year showed that that's its main priority. And you know, President Putin said that in a speech early this year. He said national defense is, is the top priority. I think policymakers in Russia will be careful not to let macroeconomic st stability slip too much. I think one of the key objectives in Russia, and this goes back many years from, from its history, is that they want to maintain low inflation. I think that's a key channel through which the government can resist public discontent for the war. So I think Russia can experience some of these macroeconomic pressures on the current account and the budget side. I think you're probably going to see the central bank responding quite forcefully to any signs of these inflation pressures building with much higher interest rates. Yeah, I think it's probably likely that the central bank raise interest rates at its, at its meeting uh, later this month. But I think... I think the point at which Russia could sort of experience destabilizing macroeconomic pressures would only really come about if there's a if there's a huge war effort and policymakers sacrifice their pursuit of macro stability to support the war. I think that could involve you know you know quite large military spending, the central bank financing the deficit through its reserves and gold holdings. You really get sort of a big erosion of, of policymaking in Russia. That looks unlikely. So I think provided that Russia stays in this quite unstable equilibrium and it experiences some of these pressures with a little bit higher inflation, I don't think it's going to feed into the war. And I think in many ways, it's, it's unlikely, I think, that Russia would, would go down this path of a, you know, a fully-fledged war economy in which there is this big erosion of macroeconomic stability. President Putin has showed no indication that he wants to go down that route. So I don't think what, what's happening in Russia's economy has huge implications for the war. I think really that's that's being determined at the top level in Russian government and in sort of separate priorities with Russia's objectives. That was Liam Peach on the Russian economy and the Putin regime's ability to continue its war. I'll link to Liam's report in the podcast notes. Do give it a read. It's a thorough guide to a thoroughly challenging period ahead for Russia's economic and military policymakers. But that's it for this week. All our insight is available on our website, including events, data, and much more. For the full meal, check out CE Advanced. That's our premium platform, which includes numerous ways to engage directly with the Economist team to address your macro and market analysis needs. That's CE Advanced. But until next time, goodbye.
Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.